0: Section 19 of England Since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. Lord John Russell's First Administration, 1846-1852, The Irish Famine and Its Consequences, Part 1. The 19th century, writes Mr. George Peel, has witnessed the persistent vengeance of Ireland. We destroyed her manufactures in the 18th century. In the 19th, she has destroyed our ministries. It is truly said, and of no ministry is it more true than the great administration of Sir Robert Peel. His defeat, in June of 1846, was due primarily of course to a desire for vengeance on the part of the protectionists but it was the irish coercion bill which gave them the chance of glutting it lord john russell's ministry did not differ widely in personnel from that of lord melbourne he himself became first lord of the treasury lord lansdowne led the house of lords as lord president of the council Lord Cottenham returned to the woolsack, from which in 1850 he retired in favour of Lord Truro. Lord Palmerston resumed his place at the Foreign Office. Lord Grey became Secretary for War and the Colonies, and Sir George Grey, Home Secretary. Sir Charles Wood was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Sir J. C. Hobhouse afterwards lord broughton was president of the board of control other cabinet officers were filled by lord minto privy seal lord auckland admiralty lord clarendon board of trade lord campbell duchy of lancaster lord morpeth woods and forests lord clanricard postmaster-general and mr t b macaulay who for a few months was paymaster of the forces the last-named and the Lord Chancellor were the only members of the cabinet who did not succeed to office by the divine right of Whigism. Eight of the fifteen were hereditary peers, and the rest were, with two exceptions, closely connected with the peerage. But the ministry as a whole was undoubtedly rich both in talent and experience of the many difficulties by which russell and his colleagues were confronted the most obtrusive was the condition of ireland and it may be well therefore to review the irish policy of the new government before proceeding to other topics the executive in ireland was confided to mr la who had a seat in the cabinet as chief secretary and lord besborough who succeeded lord hatesbury as lord lieutenant but much of the attention both of the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary was necessarily given to Irish business. The problem was sufficiently perplexing. The peasants had to be at once succored and coerced. Crime and famine were stalking hand in hand throughout the country. With neither peril did the new ministry deal firmly. Though they had utilized coercion to turn out Peel, they soon found that without it, they dare not face the coming winter in ireland they introduced an arms bill but taunted with inconsistency they dropped it and lord Bessborough was bidden to do his best with the ordinary law it was clear to demonstration that the remedies hitherto devised for a calamity unexampled in extent and severity had completely failed lord john therefore determined in the first place on a gradual discontinuance of the labor rate. It was costing the government one million sterling a month, and to the Irish people was doing at least as much harm as good. On August 15th, the act expired, and this disastrous experiment was at an end. But the Irish executive were still responsible for feeding a nation. The Prime Minister believed that no permanent remedy could be devised which did not embrace an amendment of the poor law a radical reform of the land system and a large scheme of emigration but such a legislative program would occupy the imperial parliament for years and meanwhile the irish peasants had day by day to be saved if possible from death by actual starvation Russell refused, and very properly, to relax any of the rules against employment of public labour on the improvement of private estates, but he agreed to advance money to improving landlords on easy terms. He instructed the Lord Lieutenant to acquire for the government waste lands and to sell or let them, when reclaimed, in plots of moderate size. He distributed a vast quantity of seed and attempted to develop the fisheries in the west by the introduction of expert fish curers from scotland to give technical instruction to the natives and by providing them with salt and tackle at cheap rates finally he determined to substitute relief by food for relief by labour so severe and general was destitution that by june of eighteen forty seven no less than 3,020,712 persons were daily supported on government rations. By the autumn of 1847, however, the worst was over. After the winter of 1847-1848, the famine was at an end. To succor a starving nation was no light task, but the famine itself was the least complex of the problems which arose from the failure of the potato. To discuss exhaustively the results of the famine would be to compress into a chapter the history of Ireland during the last half-century. But some of the immediate results may be summarized. The mere money cost of the calamity was appalling. In one year, 1846-1847, the loss on the oat crop and the potato crop was estimated at 16 million pounds, the Irish Board of Works spent some £11 million on relief. There was a large augmentation of local rates, in addition, of course, to the vast sums lavishly poured out by the imperial government, by societies, and by individuals. To the landlords the famine was disastrous. One-third of them were totally ruined, with nothing before them but the cold comfort of the encumbered estates court the establishment of this court was another almost inevitable result of the famine. Erected by a statute passed in 1849, it commenced its sittings on October 25th of the same year. The act gave to the vendor a simple, short, inexpensive mode of selling and transferring land, and to the purchaser the advantage of a parliamentary title, impeachable by no jurisdiction, and valid in the face of the whole world. Immediate advantage was taken of the new machinery afforded by the Act. Between October 1849 and August 1857, no less than 7,489 new proprietors, of whom 7,180 were Irishmen, obtained a stake in the country by this means, while well, the total sum realized by these sales amounted to £20,475,956. The act was therefore far from inoperative, but its results grievously disappointed expectations. The old proprietors were swept away, the new purchasers bought for profit. No sentiment intervened to soften the relations between the new men and their tenants. Rents were raised, defaulters were evicted, and the last state of the peasant was in many cases worse than the first. The final result of the measure was therefore to accentuate a difficulty it was intended to mitigate and to render still more imperative a legalization of customary rights. Closely connected with this land legislation was the amendment of the Irish Poor Law, under the pressure of the famine, the administration of relief entirely broke down, and in 1847 the law itself was amended. Outdoor relief was legalized, the boards of guardians were required to appoint medical and relieving officers, owners were made liable to rates, and the government took powers to dissolve boards of guardians for the non-performance or neglect of duties. On the other hand, Severe penalties were enacted against mendicants and vagrants, and it was provided as a further test of destitution that no occupier of more than a quarter of an acre of land should be entitled to relief. The Poor Law Amendment Act had one curious result. It gave an additional stimulus to emigration. Between 1846 and 1851, over a million people left the shores of Ireland and nearly a million died at home. In 1841, the population stood at 8,175,124. By 1851, it had fallen to 6,552,385. In the half century between 1831 and 1881, the irish population decreased by thirty-two per cent while that of england and wales increased by eighty-seven per cent so much for the economic results of the great visitation it remains to examine the political and social sequelae the increase in the amount of serious crime was appalling the homicides increased from 170 in 1846 to 212 in 1847, firing at the person from 159 in the former year to 264 in the latter, and most significant of all as proving the political character of the agitation, thefts of arms increased from 611 in 1846 to 1053 in 1847 murder followed murder with hideous regularity, and the assassins with equal regularity escaped detection. Lord Clarendon, who had succeeded Lord Bessborough as Lord Lieutenant, asked the cabinet in 1847 for further powers. Lord John held back, though his diagnosis of the situation was acute. As to the source of all this crime, he writes to Lord Clarendon on November 10th, it is plain, that the multitude consider the landlords as enemies to be shot, the priests denounce them as heretics to be cursed, and the assassin having public opinion and what he considered as religion in his favor has no remorse. By this time, the Parliament, which was elected in 1841, had run its course, and on November 1847, the new Parliament met lord john found himself at the head of three hundred and twenty five liberals the protectionists mustered two hundred and twenty six and the conservative free-traders one hundred and five peel steadily supported the government who was thus emboldened to pass a stringent coercion act the lord lieutenant was authorized to proclaim any disturbed districts and in such districts to require licenses for the carrying of arms and to increase the police force at the cost of the locality. Russell insisted, however, that coercion should not stand alone. Hence the Encumbered Estates Act, which, as we have seen, became law in 1849, and a second bill to afford tenants' compensation for improvements, which was thrown out. But though the roots of disorder might not have been touched, the more distressing symptoms rapidly abated the assassin began to be detected juries began to convict the law exacted a semblance of respect and the terror which reigned among the innocent was transferred as a contemporary phrased it to the guilty but eighteen forty eight was at hand it would have been little short of miraculous if the year of revolution had passed without incident in ireland the trend of events had for some time been toward an armed insurrection. Ever since the fatal repeal year, O'Connell had been losing ground. Young Ireland had been coming to the front, but so far the leader had been lacking. He was at last found in an Irish aristocrat of gentle birth and English breeding. Smith O'Brien was the son of an Irish baronet, a cadet of the earldom of Tommond, a descendant of Brian Baru, Educated at Harrow and Cambridge, he had entered the House of Commons in 1828 as member for Ennis and, until 1832, gave a general support to the Tory government. But in 1843 he joined the ranks of the Repealers, and in 1846 he headed a formidable secession and took with him a crowd of visionary enthusiasts including such men as Thomas Francis Mayer, John Mitchell, and Gavin Duffy. Early in 1847, the Irish Confederation was inaugurated. Its object was repeal, its methods constitutional. But events were moving faster than Smith O'Brien. In February 1848, the Republic was again proclaimed in France, and the tone Fitzgerald farce was revived by Mayer and O'Brien lamartine gave the irish envoys a chilly welcome poet and idealist though he was he was also a statesman enough to question the wisdom of bartering the sympathy of england for an alliance with young ireland by this time however the movement in ireland had become sufficiently obtrusive to compel the english government to take action to put the old treason law into operation against young irishmen was to employ a sledgehammer to crush beetles. Early in 1848, therefore, the Treason Felony Act was passed, and a large number of offenses were removed from the category of treason into that of treason felony. Smith O'Brien was arrested, but escaped conviction through the disagreement of the jury. Mitchell, by far the most daring and inventive of the Confederate leaders, was, on May 27th, sentenced to fourteen years of transportation and deported to bermuda his removal proved to be a fatal blow to the revolutionary party though its immediate effect was to hurry his associates into action on july twenty first a war directory of five persons was appointed in dublin and a few days later o'brien formally raised the standard of insurrection the response was almost tragically disappointing. A few half armed, half starved peasants enrolled themselves under his banner, and on the twenty ninth of july they attacked a small body of police who took up a position in a house near Ballingary. The fight that ensued is known to history as the Battle of Widow McCormick's cabbage garden. No great damage was done except to the cabbages, the peasants dispersed, and within a week O'Brien was arrested. The executive, meanwhile, had not been idle. Half a dozen of the chief towns, including Dublin and Cork, with as many counties, had been proclaimed. The habeas corpus act had been suspended. A vast quantity of arms had been seized, and a proclamation had been issued offering £500 reward for the arrest of O'Brien. Arrested on August 5th, he was tried for high treason and found guilty and condemned to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Despite his own protest, the sentence was commuted, and he was transported to Australia. Mare shared his fate, and the Irish, 48, was at an end. Sonorously tragic in its opening, it had degenerated into farce, and was eventually killed almost as much by ridicule as by coercion. In August 1849, Queen Victoria, accompanied by the prince consort and their elder children, paid her first visit to Ireland. Expensive ceremonial would, under the circumstances, have been an outrage upon decency. The queen, with characteristic consideration, refused to allow it, and visited Cork, Dublin, and Belfast in her yacht. The unaffected enthusiasm with which the royal party was received, more than atoned for the absence of ornate preparations and profoundly touched the queen's heart. The visit, unhappily not repeated for half a century, did something also to obliterate the painful and bitter memories of the last three years. A year later, Russell proposed to abolish the viceroyalty, but yielded somewhat weakly to the clamor which such a proposal inevitably creates. He succeeded, however, in carrying a bill for a considerable extension of the Irish franchise. In Ireland, therefore, the ministry was at last sailing into smoother waters. Apart from Ireland, political interests centered in Lord Palmerston's conduct of foreign affairs. Before proceeding, however, to that topic, it may be well to say something of the progress of affairs at home. In their financial policy, Russell and Sir Charles Wood adhered steadfastly to the principle of Goulburn and Peel. In 1846 they abolished the preference hitherto given to the English colonies and produced an extra £300,000 for the year's revenue. But these results, in the view of Lord George Bentinck, were obtained at a cost of imperial ruin so great as to be intolerable. In producing their budget for 1847, the government was confronted by a strangely paradoxical situation. A year of exceptional distress and dislocation had yielded an overflowing revenue. The harvest had failed, prices were high, thousands of people had to be kept alive by public and private bounty, yet the exchequer was full. The cost of the famine for the current year was estimated at eight million pounds, which would justifiably raised by a loan obtained at three pounds seven shillings sixpence per cent. The general election which took place in the late summer of eighteen forty seven had little effect upon the balance of parties, but it had a significant bearing upon the fiscal question. The liberals were in a majority of ninety-nine over the protectionists but the balance was held by 105 Peelites. Macaulay lost his seat at Edinburgh owing to his vote on the Maynooth bill, but the tariff reformers were for the most part triumphantly returned. Villers and Bright in Lancashire, Cobden for the West Riding. The year 1847 was, however, less remarkable for a general election than for a commercial crisis of unusual severity. The cyclical fluctuation of trade is now a phenomenon of common observation. No one expects a boom to be prolonged indefinitely. The lean years follow upon the fat with unfailing regularity. In 1847, the phenomenon was relatively unfamiliar and consequently more alarming. Apart from that, the crisis was exceptionally acute. A period of speculation and overtrading was, as usual, followed by stringency in the money market and, ultimately, by collapse of credit. Prices fluctuated widely, and the famine intensified the prevailing distress. But the immediate cause of the crisis was the railway mania. In the three years, 1844 to 1846, Parliament sanctioned a capital expenditure of £185 million, pounds, while the railway companies were, in November 1845, anxious to raise no less than £700 million pounds of new capital. No country in the world could have stood the strain. The smash came in the autumn of 1847. No fewer than 220 great houses failed, and the total losses were estimated at thirty million pounds. Consoles, having averaged ninety five and three quarter in 1846, fell to seventy eight. The discount rate rose nominally to eight per cent, but even at that rate, few could get accommodation. On 25th October, however, the government authorized the Bank of England to infringe the terms of their charter and to issue notes. Without the legal reserve in specie. So successful was this action that confidence was quickly restored, and no indemnity was actually required. End of section 19.